As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is London Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and we're heading east today to find out what is increasingly happening to food that is unwanted by supermarkets, both here in the capital and right across the country. If you like the show, please, please, please tweet us and uh, get onto iTunes and give us a cuddly review. Like us on Facebook. Uh, I think there's something else you can do on Facebook as well now. Uh, Do that. But if the new thing you can do is awful, don't do that. Most of all, enjoy. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a strong throw from your front door. Hello from Bethnal Green, where I'm a couple of floors up and looking out over a park, a train line, a building site, the city of London in the background on the horizon there, the shard poking up, always popping up where you're not expecting it to be. We are at an institution, I think it's fair to call it. It's been around for some time. We've covered it on Londonist before in print, but not before in sound. We're at Food Cycle. With me is Claire Skelton. She's the comms manager here. Hi, Claire. Hi, Quentin. What is Food Cycle, first of all? Oh gosh, where to begin? Uh, this is the easy one. This is the easy, yes. So Food Cycle, we are a national movement. Uh, we're a charity. We have 29 projects all across the country. And what we do is we take surplus food uh, from supermarkets and we cook that into healthy, nutritious three-course meals for people who are maybe living in food poverty, who are lonely, who are isolated... And we use that food and we cook it into, as I said, these these delicious meals and sit down together and share that meal and a conversation with our guests and volunteers. This sounds like wholesomeness embodied. We are. We are very, we are very good. Yes. Now, I should have picked up on this from the pictures that are surrounding us. I should say, by the way, we're in a a conference room and we are surrounded (laughs) by lots of artificial plants. Very implausible looking plants. Yeah, they really don't look... Very realistic, do they? What are they doing here? Um, 
think we just try and make her uh, maybe feel a bit more human in in the office. <laughs> so you can huh. tell that I feel really quite. I'm not a fan of these plants. I'm going to put it. I'm going to put it out there. I'm a fan of real plants. I'm not a fan of fake plants. Well, I endorse your view, um, but what I was coming to, and I think I should have come to earlier, the picture on the wall there is of a kitchen. We've got happy helpers um, putting together what looks like a delicious curry. I can't help noticing that in the place I've just walked through to get to this luxurious, well-appointed conference room, desk after desk of people tapping away on their keyboards, which doesn't seem to match up with the activities you've just described. (laughs) Bethnal Green is um, where we have our head office. So you'll have seen, we've got about 10 members of staff. We are roughly divided 50-50, so half of the team are our programmes team. So what they do is they support all of our projects that are working on the ground. So we've got a team of four. They will be dealing on a weekly basis with making sure the food supply is going okay, making sure the venues where we have um, our meals going okay, mainly supporting our volunteers because we're completely volunteer-run. Our projects on the ground are, are, are supported by these amazing volunteers who I'm sure we'll speak about later and so the team here at head office level will kind of be making sure that those relationships are going okay the other side of the team so that's myself and a couple of fundraisers we're in charge of making sure that we keep the money coming in and that we my role in particular that we spread the word as much as we can about um, our impact so obviously we're a charity and we try and keep our costs as low as possible hence not having the real plants hence not having the real plants and hence not having the flashiest office in the world well i think it's rather nice actually and the view and now uh, remind me which park this is this is uh weaver's field weaver's field of course Mm. so on a lunchtime we'll have our lunch together and then we'll go for a little walk around weaver's field to digest our lunch and get ready for the afternoon ahead how big is this operation? How far are you spread? So, our uh, 29 projects. Our most northern project is Durham, and the team up there are opening a second hub in Chesterley Street, which I'm not sure if listeners will be aware of Chesterley Street. It's just outside of the city centre. And Durham has this image of being very... Um, I'm from that part of the world. It's very, uh, the city's very genteel, it's very beautiful, it's obviously got an amazing university, but Durham as a county obviously after the closure of the mines, um, has for years had high levels of deprivation, so they've wanted to extend their service um, elsewhere. So that's our most northern hub. We are down in Bristol, Exeter and Bath, that direction. Probably all of our projects are united in the fact that there are hidden pockets of poverty in every place. I mean, London is the prime example of that. Where should we be looking in London? Are they the obvious place? Of course, for example, Tower Hamlets, Newham might suggest itself to people. Are there other places? Yeah, I think, I mean, the one that springs immediately to my mind is Islington. So our Islington project is based just off Upper Street. So, you know, you can be having a lovely brunch or walking down Upper Street in the sunshine and it kind of looks so beautiful and, you know, very affluent. But of course, there are just, you know, a couple of streets off from that are areas where people are really struggling. So I think that's really important, particularly in London, that our projects are in places like that. We're out in Norwich direction, We've got a project in Clacton, in Essex, uh, we're down in Portsmouth. We're growing. That's, that's impressive, really Thank impressive. And, uh, have you been around long? We started cooking in May 2009, so we'll be celebrating our seventh birthday. Well, that's phenomenal. Yeah. We've opened five new projects this year. But it's only March, so we are growing at a rate of knots, which is which is brilliant because people are so, I think people are so enthused by food waste and so enthused by fighting food poverty, and for them, 
the volunteering aspect is such a they see such an immediate impact that they're having so yeah it does feel really nice that we've got so many people who want to get involved in the food cycle movement I can see that you mean this as well. There are some, I should say there are some communications officers who uh, deliver their script Dalek fashion. <laughs> uh, impressive though the figures are, there's very little passion behind there. And it absolutely is, a favor- is, is, is the, the most favourite part of my job. That's really awful grammar, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's for me going out to a hub and seeing... I wish, I, I don't know, I wish we were almost having this interview in a hub. We, we should do that in the future, but... Um, you know, you see this kind of these mound, this mound of, of food. It's perfectly good food that you know would end up going to rot or being, you know, being thrown away. This amazing food coming into a kitchen space. This kind of team of volunteers who all get together and stand around, kind of ready, steady, cook style, and say, "Oh my God, what are we going to make from cherries and an aubergine and six thousand tons of bananas?" And then two, two or three hours later, they've made this incredible three-course meal. And then you have these guests who come in and and I think the thing that I feel so passionately about is that we're not just giving people food and then sending them off to go and eat it somewhere by themselves. It's actually about saying, well, let's all sit down together. Why wouldn't we eat this meal together? And the conversations you have with guests are amazing. I just, I love hearing people's stories and that can be quite hard at times, but I think food is such a, it's such a vehicle for other things. Yeah, right, and that very much is traditionally part of the mealtime, isn't it, sitting around talking. So we'll talk about the food as well, but I wanted to focus on the people. Now, do I call them service users, or is there something a little better we could call? We always call um, we always call guests who come to our meals, yeah. I mean, we can say beneficiaries or service users, but I think, yeah, we would always refer to, to our guests as people who are coming and sitting down. At, just like a restaurant, you know, our, our guests are served restaurant style there's proper crockery on the tables there's proper knives and forks and maybe some of your listeners have volunteered in similar projects and I know that I've been in places where guests are only allowed plastic knives and forks or not even allowed forks at all and I just think I don't know dignity is such a, a word that's bandied around but I think we really want to put that idea of kind of respecting our guests and putting dignity back in eating together rather than it sort of I don't know, diminishing people as human beings. I think there is, I think there's a danger of putting people in a certain box that they haven't themselves kind of, if they haven't identified uh-huh. themselves as that, then, you know, we would never want to do that. But we, we know that, um, here I go with the stats, a quarter of our um, guests are accessing food banks and accessing money advice and, and debt services. So we know that there is an issue there with low income. But equally, a huge number of our guests are older people who might not necessarily be poor, but they are um, struggling in other areas of their lives. So they only ever get out once a week and Food Cycle is the only chance they get out and have a meal with someone else. So so many of our guests are dealing with a complex factor, in, you know, factor of issues in their lives like housing or work or mental health or asylum issues. So... Yeah, there's a lot. Got it, yeah, lots of different stuff going on. This reminds me very much, and I'm always happy to name check the choir with no name, who are dealing, on the face of it, they're dealing with uh, people who are or have been homeless, which already is quite a wide spectrum of people. But a lot of the mealtime conversation is actually where the good work happens alongside the singing. And it sounds like a very similar sort of operation is sort of reaching out and drawing people in who otherwise would be on their lonesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think very rarely I've been at a hub talking about someone's kind of the situation that they're in I mean they might touch on that they're having an issue 
with housing, for example. But actually, the, most of the conversation is about football or the food or politics or the weather or, or just like anything I'd probably talk about with my friends around the table. You know, it's kind of making people feel normal. Is, is a huge part of having that conversation. So it's not kind of going into their lives or prying or anything like that, like they might be having at other services. It's just, it's just about having a chat. I think it's huge. In some ways, that sounds like a difficult model to get funding for as soon as you start getting into that sort of in, almost intangible area, difficult to measure area. Certainly, I know that that can present challenges because a lot of funding, particularly in times like this, is based on outcomes. So you've got the volunteers, but presumably the crockery needs to live somewhere. So I guess there's some sort of, uh, some sort of space involved. So we can... We can obviously quantify, we're very lucky that much of our overheads in terms of projects are low because we're relying on resources that we're using, resources that already exist. So surplus food, we don't have to pay for food, that's through relationships with supermarkets. Um, Many of our venues want to use their kitchen spaces for something good, so there might be a venue charge or, you know, rent cost, but they are low. And then we're relying on volunteers who are donating their time. So, that so, has, so you're talking about like a cafe might lend it itself to you? Yes, yes, yes. So that model in itself works very efficiently because we're making use of resources that, that already exist. But it's very hard to quantify our impact in terms of, obviously we can measure how many meals we've served and, and, and how many volunteers hour, volunteer hours and how much surplus food we've saved. And I think we've got some great statistics around that. But, okay, how do we measure the impact we're having in terms of tackling loneliness which is huge in this country or how are we working to alleviate some mental health issues we've got this lovely percentage of guests who say i think it's 80 percent of guests say that they've made friends and feel more a part of the community since coming to a food cycle meal which for us is is why we exist it's it, it, that, that's that's wonderful you're talking about a lot of hidden lonely people i suspect you're more likely to be more aware of that than the average person on the street could you could you unpack that a little yeah of course so i think age uk had did some research recently it said something like one million older people say they often or always feel lonely i mean that's a horrible that's a horrible number and there's something like, i think six hundred thousand older people don't leave their house more than like once a week or they see someone more than once a week and I think for us living our busy lives going to work having families seeing friends when you think about all of those people being eliminated from your life and probably the only person you maybe chat with is the guy in the corner shop when you go down and get your paper if you're able to get to the corner shop exactly then that is that is horrible it's absolutely horrible so I definitely have met so many people of all ages it's not just older people but of all ages who who come to food cycle meals and they kind of say it's so nice to have a chat with someone if you throw in as well as age because we do see a barrier there don't we not everybody does but quite often you will make big assumptions about somebody who seems to belong to a different group to you and ages Mm. obviously stratifies us but throw in even the slightest obstacle into the mix as well for example uh, some sort of minor mental health issue or the person being a a bit slower than you are because you're rushing to Mm. get to your job and they don't have that pressure on them and take a little bit longer to speak i'm not sure that we're always as accommodating in the way we interact as we might be yeah. So today, I normally I cycle to work, so I'm kind of in my own cycling bubble. And the days that I do get public transport, it's so easy just to kind of have, have your head down on the phone, reading a newspaper. But I think, yeah, in this fast-paced world, 
there's something huge about taking time to kind of to sit down together with people who you may never see them again but if you have one or two hours and actually sit together and eat together then I don't know I just think that's wonderful yeah if only that were something that you could do on a general basis like every time you sit down for a meal you have to have it with three people you don't know mm. yeah I think there's um it's like a, a bisto advert out at the moment that's talking about that's about inviting your neighbor around for lunch and I mean obviously they're trying to sell bisto but I just think there's something nice in in the idea of of chatting with someone new I mean as we probably get a bit more specialized in our lives in terms of you have again your set group of friends and your family and your colleagues the opportunities to maybe meet with and chat with different people aside from those kind of like quick interactions maybe at a supermarket checkout if you're using a checkout you might be using a self-scanner um, oh wow I, you've just made me realize goodness me even that interaction might be phased out yeah yeah and my colleague nick he is actually he's inspired me quite a lot in terms of when, whenever we go and nip over the road to the supermarket he will always go to the person on the checkout and i remember i was, I was saying come come to the scanners and he said no let's go to the checkout and I think it's just about kind of like those little interactions that you just have to kind of find the value in. Again, here I am with stats. Uh, we have lovely um, statistics of, of volunteers who say, I think something, again, over 80% of volunteers say that through a food cycle meal, they have met people from different cultures or backgrounds or ages to themselves. And I think especially if you're a university student, which many of our volunteers are, you're kind of primed to be meeting so many different people through that experience of, of going to a new town and a new city, but they might all be people who are in the academic world. They're kind of your, uh, your new housemates or they're on the same course as you. It might be quite unusual for you to go to a new city like Leeds and then get involved in a refugee project and meet refugees, which is, that's exactly what we do up in Leeds. So... I think giving people those, those opportunities to do that is, is really important. I had a, a meal with a group of people that I wouldn't normally sit down. I was invited to a meal with 20 judges and one admiral and me. Oh, my God. That was a real, that was a real learning experience. Yeah, what did you talk about? Well, cr- criminal justice has one surprise you. The, the eye-opener there was the amount of booze that judges pack away during their lunch break. Yeah. Uh, it was a quaffing of champagne as we arrived. And then a glass of red wine with the meal, and then a glass of white wine to fit, and a dessert wine. I went in to watch the case that one of them was looking after afterwards. <laughs> and I'm just going to say that he closed his eyes to think very carefully for about an hour. <laughs> I really wish we had that food cycle meal. That sounds like a lovely, um, a lovely combination. <laughs> I think you get a lot more people claiming that they were feeling lonely. <laughs> yes. So how do you how do you contact these people in the first place then? Um, so we do outreach work. So we kind of will try and partner with lots of different organisations in the local area. So churches are an ideal place to do that. Mental health services through local councils. But a lot of it is word of mouth and people bringing people they know along, which is, which is really nice. It is quite organic that, that people do that. But we're very aware that it's important when we set something up that we're kind of targeting a group of people. I mean... Our doors are open to everybody, but we obviously want to target those who are most vulnerable. So, yeah, working with those kind of partner organisations is 
That's how we do that. This is potentially a difficult introduction to make then because you might be aware of somebody maybe lives in the same street as you who doesn't get out enough or you're conscious that nobody's talking to them and you might want to introduce them to this service but how do you negotiate that that's tricky isn't it yeah it is and it's something that we talk about quite a lot in the office of saying if we're trying to attract the most socially isolated that's a pretty difficult task because how do you contact how do you identify someone who's Mm. isolated excuse me are you socially isolated exactly and how do you contact them and and how do you kind of build those relationships and and give them the confidence to come along so those things do take a long time and we are experimenting lots of different ways of doing that so things like we've got london flyers that have lists of all of our different meals on the back um, and the front is kind of about saying i think the communication comes into it quite um quite important in that so it's not kind of saying here's this handout it's saying come along and have a meal with us so it's an invitation rather than you know a referral or someone who's kind of been identified to come and you're targeting them to kind of step forward and 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 Mm. say well yes I'm on low income I I should come to this meal it's saying here's this surplus food we need to do something with it we've cooked a meal we'd love you to come along and eat it with us so it's kind of yeah I think it's an important difference there this can never just be about food can it you've got to be skilled in lots of other areas as well spotting things referring things knowing how to handle um things can you talk about that a bit yeah of course so i probably should have mentioned earlier that we have um hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hub leaders. So they are, they're still volunteers, but they're people who um, got about 120 of them across the country. So they're kind of six or seven people in each of our hubs who have kind of been, they run the hub on the ground so um they're specialists who've kind of been they've been trained in they'll have first aid training they'll have supporting vulnerable people training they'll be able to identify vulnerable individuals at a project level um and to go back to the people in the office that i mentioned earlier the the programs team who are supporting them from a head office level um we're always in touch with those hub leaders so any sort of potential issue is kind of flagged and dealt with very quickly because obviously we would never want a volunteer or a guest to be in a vulnerable position from a particular interaction or anything like that so yeah it's something that we obviously have to be really really 
aware of. And I think working with organisations like mine, the mental health charity, such as we do in Islington, that kind of just proves how important it is to have there's obviously specialists on the ground that are there every single day who are working and who recognise and know the guests who will be coming and accessing their services already. Um, and they will have kind of referred them to Food Cycle and, and they'll kind of be in the centre already. So, yeah, it, it's crucial to the work we do that no one is ever in a position where they kind of feel in danger or they feel uncomfortable. Oh, no, I wanted to ask you about this. I never get to hear about them. Before we press record on this interview, mm-hmm. you mentioned that uh, you've done media training with her. And I thought, oh, no, OK, so that raises the prospect that a number of people I'm speaking to have done media training. They've been trained <laughs> to talk to me. What does that mean? What have you been trained to say? How have you been trained to say? Well, now I'm really thinking that your listeners are going to be like, this girl's had media training. She sounds so rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best you can do. Um, I think it's pretty standard now for people working in communications and representing their organisation I suppose I mean you hear it don't you if you like listen to the Today programme you can hear when a politician has been media trained to within an inch of their life because all you're doing is screaming at the radio saying answer the question stop just reading your script yes like sidestepping around what what the journalist actually wants them to say so I think when I've been trained it's always been it's always been from a charity perspective, which is obviously the sector that I work in, which I love. And the main message I've always been taught is tell stories. It's kind of try not to talk about too many statistics. So, oh, well, you failed, you failed completely. <laughs> you've fallen at the first hurdle. Yeah, you've told no stories and you've delivered <laughs> statistics. Oh dear. <laughs> What's the next thing you were taught? <laughs> um, so, tell stories to make to paint a picture. Try and avoid jargon. I've probably fallen down a couple of I think, I think we've been all right there. Okay. Yeah. Um, tell stories, avoid jargon, and... Don't give long pauses while you think what... long pauses. <laughs> it was also actually on... Um, part of the media training was how to look when you're being... If you're, say, being filmed. Oh, right, okay. I'm dying to know. I'm really glad, actually, that I'm not being filmed because I will have failed this test also because I put my hands in front of my mouth and I've probably been playing with my hair and it was all kind of what, what ladies should wear and <laughs> um, always accept makeup and things like that. Beekeeping so. outfits are a no-no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the line always accept makeup kind of, I don't know, threw me a little bit, so... I'm disappointed I haven't got a makeup artist today, but we're on radio. So I'm sorry not to have offered you makeup. <laughs> yeah. I feel I've fallen short as well. Well, you're not doing a very good job so far, are you? I'm absolutely rubbish. Yeah, the food cycle should get rid of me now. <laughs> uh, now, now we're into a dark area of the interview. Claire, you were the comms officer here at Food Cycle. <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. <laughs> I just wanted to return to that picture yes. uh, looking at us through the artificial foliage of the, the kitchen. <laughs> so when you mentioned the food from the supermarkets, mm. what I had in my head was an enormous mountain of products. Uh, well, I was, Do you know, actually, before I came here, I was thinking of bin dipping. I don't mean I was planning to do bin dipping. <laughs> I mean, I, when you think about taking excess food from the supermarkets, the place that that has appeared in discourse that I've heard has been people going into the supermarket grounds late at night and raiding the bins for perfectly good food and then the supermarkets responding by putting up uh, barbed wire fences around their precious bins but then when you were talking I was imagining a load of produce that looks exactly like it would on the shelf Mm. but but what's what's the deal here what are they giving you so we have connections with all the big supermarkets so Tesco Morrison's Waitrose M&S Sainsbury's 
And the yeah, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. The food often looks like you would take it off the shelf. So um, our volunteers will go into their local Tesco Metro. They'll see the store manager who they see every week. Um, they'll have a nice little chat. The store manager will bring them the trays or the bags of food that they can't sell. They'll probably have a nice little look through it. They'll put it in a granny trolley and then take it to the hub to, to cook with. So yeah, there's no sort of backdoor transactions or kind of at night kind of squirrelling under fences to, to dumpster dive. It's it is going into the store and kind of quite visibly taking that surplus food and putting it to good use. So this is out of date food? It's food that that the supermarket has, has deemed that they can't sell, so it's not past its sell by date, but it's things like so fruit, vegetables and baked goods, those are our kind of three big types of food that we get. So it's probably a perfect example is in the baked goods. So we will get a lot of fresh bread that is perfectly fine, that's beautiful quality, um, but that won't be sold the next day because the supermarkets will be getting a fresh load of that bread. So um, it's absolutely fine and they don't want to throw it out, but they know that they'll be getting kind of fresh croissants and loaves the next day. Or we might get, so I mentioned cherries probably quite a few minutes ago um, and that always sticks in my head of we I remember getting two big trays of cherries absolutely huge and beautiful it was like the middle of the summer just I mean they're gorgeous and a certain kind of part of the cherries in that tray had kind of just got a bit squishy and so they wouldn't be sold because it kind of would have impacted on the other cherries emotionally speaking yes they would have been but I was about to say they would have been lonely they wouldn't have been lonely because there's millions of them uh, <laughs> but distressed they would have been distressed right. yes and kind of the juice of some of the cherries that got a bit bashed around would have impacted on the rest of those other cherries so um, yeah we ended up making some lovely sort of cherry pudding that day are the supermarkets chucking out stuff in a frivolous way it sounds like there's a lot of good food going mm, no I think we would always very much see that the people that we work with, the supermarkets we work with, are trying really hard to reduce that waste. And there's so much going on in the media now about supermarkets cutting that waste. So we definitely see that there's movements to tighten up their production their systems, all that kind of that work. There's also a lot of work going on to kind of help consumers cut down on their waste. So I think there was a programme just before Christmas, um, Hugh Finney, Wittenstall's War on Waste, and that was really shocking. I think for a lot of people that I was talking to, friends and family, who know that I, the charity I work for would then sort of be saying to me, oh my God, I didn't realise how much I actually was throwing out until mm. I saw that programme. So it either ends of the production system there are, of the food system there are, kind of people are tightening up, and I think that's kind of where we step in when it comes to actually in store once the food has got into the store if it's not going to be sold the best place for it to come to is to organizations like us to to use it yeah i always feel terrible whenever you see something that you bought we're planning to eat and then you realize it's a week out of date and really it's got to go yeah you feel awful like throwing things out and i think i've learned a lot about you know little tips that you can do we've got loads on our website i'm sure we can kind of share them but yeah it is when you kind of buy like a bag of salad or something in those kind of plastic bags and I've got no idea what happens to them but I seem to put it in the fridge and then the next day it's kind of starting to go a little bit squidgy and I just think I'm so cross at myself for not you know using it straight away so I think we're all as consumers becoming much much more aware of 
what it means to throw out food. I read something recently that was kind of, it was talking a lot about um, the, the cost of throwing out food. So how much it, how much the average household throws out in terms of monetary figures, like how many hundreds of pounds it is a year. But then actually kind of from a moral perspective, there's so much time and energy and resources that have gone into that from a farmer's and from a grower's perspective that it's wrong to throw something out that someone has spent so long nurturing and growing so yeah, yeah and all the goodness from the earth that's gone into mm. that I, I, we're kind of divorced from a lot of that stuff though aren't we we don't particularly in london we're not surrounded by people growing things uh, we might have more of an idea if we've got an allotment or if we grew up in the country and we saw this stuff mm. happening there are some great things going on in Hackney actually all across the city but Hackney springs to mind because it's where I live and there's um, growing communities and um, so many different kind of like urban gardening things that are taking place and it's just I think it's just about kind of making making those initiatives more accessible or as accessible as possible to everybody Um, not just maybe like the initial kind of group of people who are doing it but kind of making it feel like everybody can take part in something like that, which is a, is a big challenge, definitely. I don't know if this is too big a question for the subject, really, but is it possible to say something about the general trend in food production on the one hand, food consumption on the other, uh, waste coming out of that process? Is there any sort of tendency in which, which way that equation is balancing or rebalancing across time? Uh, you hear a lot about us being less self-sufficient for food, for example. You hear about changes in, in the amount of food waste that we've been talking about. What sort of trends are you seeing on the, the macro scale? I think, and this is just my kind of personal my personal opinion. I think we have become so used to wanting to have everything, at, you know, every moment of our lives. So I'll get off the tube at night, and I'll kind of, I'll know that if I go into the shop on my way home, I'll be able to get milk. I'll be able to get a loaf of bread, and it might be February, but I might be able to get some lovely raspberries or I'll be able to get some fresh pineapple or something like that I think we're, we're very very used to kind of being able to to have what we want when we want it that's probably the biggest trend and I don't think that's just in the food industry it's kind of I think it's across lots of different industries fashion we want to be able to fly or travel to wherever we want to you know kind of on, on a particular day at a particular time which is great because that's kind of how the world has evolved but I think we also have to kind of be mindful of the waste that can come from that with that sort of mindset, we can only be one step away from expecting certain sorts of weather on demand. Oh, must be. I don't know. Why should we put up if we're not prepared to put up with with nature producing certain sorts of fruit at particular times of the year? Why on earth should we put up with that grey sky over there? <laughs> I don't know. I think there's sometimes enjoyment from a little bit of grey sky and drizzle. Spoken like a true Brit. <laughs> It makes you appreciate the good times. There is no what the two days in the yeah. middle of June. I don't. I think um, I'm a runner, and I that sounds really wacky, doesn't it? What running? I was saying I'm a runner. Well, no. I tell you what, though, I'm, I'm imagining that whatever comes out of your mouth next is going to be. So I'm prepared to face the. I will battle the elements. Well, I don't know. I, I quite like. If you're going on like a big walk up a hill or you're going on like a run or something. I laugh in the face of then, drizzle. Then you kind of come back and, all, well, yeah, when I'm running, all I can think of, hot bath, hot bath, hot bath. That keeps you going. Because of the, the pain and the trauma you've been through beforehand. Was that supposed to be a case <laughs> for bad weather? I like, yeah, I think you've managed to lead me down that road. Yeah. I'm not convinced. We're coming, unfortunately, close to the end of our time. Sorry, that's been... 
Yes. It's flown by. Do you work in initiatives like some organisations do? Is it a constant flow of food? We actually have just, this is very timely, we have just announced our new partnership with um, an organisation called Feedback. Um, and what we're doing is we're training 4,000, we're working with Feedback uh, to train 4,000 young people in the green economy. So what that means is uh, 18 to 24-year-olds will be able to go through feedback and go gleaning, which is basically going to... Gleaning? Gleaning, yes. Uh, More fun than cleaning. Um, You... Never never thought of that before. (laughs) You go to farms... It's not not really saying very much. (laughs) Everything's more fun than cleaning. (laughs) I was about to say I quite quite enjoy a clean, but... (laughs) There's a... There's a sort of self-flagellation side to you, I would say. I know, I know. Yeah, I do sound like a bit like a, a bit Puritan, don't I? Um, no, I'm getting off topic. Gleaning is where you go to a farm and uh, all of the, the produce um, that has been grown but doesn't meet cosmetic standards of supermarkets, that produce would, would be thrown away were it not for feedback who run gleaning sessions across the country with volunteers. What we do is, um, in our new project with them, is that we're kind of tying up those kind of two parts of those of surplus food volunteering. So volunteers will be able to go to a farm in Yorkshire, for example, uh, and glean fresh fruit and vegetables that would otherwise be rejected. And they will then, and hopefully some of that food, will then go to a food cycle project like Sheffield, where that food will then be cooked, uh, just as we not do in all of our projects, cooked into meals for uh, vulnerable people. So that's our latest and newest project, which was launched yesterday. It's called From Farm to Fork. So if anyone's 18 to 24 and wants to take part, we'd love to hear from you. I really like the vibe of this project. Thank you, yeah. And I think probably what I should have talked about more is that it's actually really fun, like doing something like that. Is yeah, but your idea of fun is highly questionable. <laughs> going for a run in the rain and cleaning. So yes. Not really. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you're the best person to okay. say that. Maybe I need to find someone else to, to say that it is fun. <laughs> is, is there anybody who's into sort of motor racing or uh, windsurfing? <laughs> yeah, we have got some really fun people in the office, so maybe they should have come and talked about it. <laughs> now, despite the training that you mentioned, we've managed to get the whole way through the interview without a story. So I'm uh, tempted to ask in closing, is there a particular moment or a particular person or an event that is on your mind over the, uh, the, that comes from the last seven years? Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to go with this. So a couple of months ago, I went to visit our Clacton project in Essex. It was a cold and windy day, one of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and got down to our Clacton hub met the lovely volunteer team there and they were kind of they're a well-oiled machine and so I sort of flapped around a little bit in the kitchen and said can I do anything to help and they said no just go and chat to one of our guests and and just you know have lunch so it was just an opportunity to kind of go down and see what they were up to so I sat down at a table with probably about eight or nine people who were like mid-20s early 30s and we had a really nice conversation we chatted about Tottenham Football Club we talked about the beach we talked about ice cream I remember we had a really nice frittata that day that was delicious and we talked about scrambled eggs and something that really sticks in my mind is I remember like turning to the guy on my left who 
had a guitar and he had been playing a little bit of music. He was amazing. And I, we had a little conversation and I kind of said, who do you know around the table? And he was like, oh, I know everybody. And I like kind of pointed everybody out and said everybody's names. And, um, and I was like, how, how do you know them? And he was like, oh, from here. Like, I came to Clacton. He'd obviously had... He had um, he talked a little bit about his life. He'd had a pretty um, rough deal. And, yeah, he just kind of said, you know, I came to Clacton and just kind of, like, looking to make a bit of a break and just try and kind of make a new start. And, yeah, everybody I know here is through coming down here for lunch on a Monday. So that, I don't know, that for me just kind of half broke my heart and half I don't know made my heart back together again <laughs> so yeah I think often I go to a hub and you have those bittersweet moments of you see that people have had gone through quite a lot but then you see how important yeah the food and the meal and sitting down with other people is so yeah those are the kind of sweet points as well is that a good enough story <laughs> it was an excellent story um if uh, and I, I had a phrase this. If I say if people are interested, if they've got, <laughs> I was about to say if people are interested, and then I thought, well, it, it, you know what? They they sat there for forty five minutes listening to this. If they're not interested now, what do they do? They're, they're one of your clan who likes to just <laughs> yeah, put themselves through pain. <laughs> precisely. Uh, but if you're still here and it's just occurred to you that you might be interested in this uh, subject, then the website that you need is www.foodcycle.org.uk Claire Skelton, thanks very much. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Claire Skelton. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.